Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Glenn Hogan teaches industrial design at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design University. He's received numerous awards and grants and is currently chief investigator of the Canadian Institute of Health Research's Innovation Enhancement Grant to do research and product development around design for an aging population. Glenn is a big believer in human-centered design. His research and work has been covered in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the PBS series Life Part 2, and ABC's Good Morning America on their Health Watch segment, to name just a few places. Besides teaching, Glenn is a principal at Wellspan Research and Design, which helps businesses develop products, strategies, and opportunities to meet the needs of our aging society. He joins us today from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Glenn Hogan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start with the teaching part. You teach industrial design, and for listeners who don't know, what exactly is industrial design, and how does it differ from other forms of design? Well, in, I'm an industrial designer, um, mm-hmm. and actually I teach, uh, they're calling it product design here, and I think okay. that's a better, a better, probably a better word, mm-hmm. um, sort of a layman's term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a program called interdisciplinary design, so we have graphic designers, and we have different types of other designers. Mm-hmm. So it's an interdisciplinary design program, and I'm kind of their product design person. Okay. Um, so products are, 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 are really anything that you use on an everyday basis from, you know, the, the cell phone that you're holding to the, the utensils you use in your uh, kitchen for cooking and things like that. So uh, right now it's all tangible products, but mm-hmm. design is really changing because in, in reality, a lot of products are fairly well designed. I mean, you can look at chairs and they've been designed that they haven't changed much probably right. over the last couple of thousand years. Right. Um, so it's evolving into more of a, a not just product, but also service design because services right. are badly designed, whether it's the healthcare system or a prison system and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the tents and purposes, I'm just, I still make things and I design and make things. And my interest, of course, is making things for an aging population. Mm-hmm. So explain the, the human-centered approach to design and how you help your students understand the challenges that are specific to the older adult population. Well, a human-centered design is really, uh, some people call it user-centered also, mm-hmm. but increasingly it's being called more human-centered, where it's actually basing it around um, human needs. And I always tell the students, especially uh, when you're designing, is to talk to people understand the issues and problems, identify those problems, and then identify design opportunities that you can help solve those problems. So really what it is, it's an approach. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of nothing new. Talk to people and design around their needs. Okay. So describe the empathy suit and how it's used in your teaching. I thought that was really interesting. And in fact, the empathy suit came around, which is my background is in human factors around ergonomics. Mm-hmm. And 
I had wanted to really understand what happens as you age from a physiological aspect. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll replicate this in a, something that you could put on and sort of understand it. So it started out as a research project for me, and it's involved in many uh, different ways. Mm-hmm. But I'm essentially um, really restricting range of motion mm-hmm. and uh, the physiological aspects, not psychological aspects, right. because right. I can't do that. So it is limited in what it can do. And I've, I've really pulled back from, from what it really does. It starts a conversation about what it might feel like to be aging. But I think as we age, we all take our own journey. And that's really what I found is uh, uh, the physical uh, changes that happen are really individual to, to people. Mm-hmm. But it is a nice way for my students to um, um, start a conversation of what it might feel like. And a few years ago, when I first did it, I actually had them make their own aging suits. And um, it was really, really powerful because they started to think, and this is, and this is where you kind of uh, almost brings tears to a, a professor's eyes, mm-hmm. when they start to try to talk about what Parkinson's might feel like. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they interestingly took a, a, a sex toy that vibrated mm-hmm. and actually put it in a glove because they thought that might help understand it. But it was a really, uh, it was a really mm-hmm. powerful moment of really trying to understand a condition that that might happen to another person and um, so that's in some ways it starts a conversation it's really that's all it's really meant to do mm-hmm. um, a, con- a, a deeper conversation about someone else's experiences from a different age group so kind of moving them out of their age group which is sometimes hard for a 20 year old to, to think beyond something else yeah do you have recollection of any sort of specific responses you know and how it might have affected their views one of the classes, and when I first did it, I did design for an aging population probably about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I had them design the suit, the first time they came back, um, and I thought I had sensitized them to the issues, of all the issues. Mm-hmm. And when they were presenting their suit, they actually started to wear it. One group had um, their suit, which they're interested in the, the functional issues they were dealing with, but they put on a Halloween mask of an older person. Oh, wow. Simulate. Yeah. And it really, it was like, and, and for me, it was like, oh, my goodness, I have not made any inroads right. to them thinking about it. Because, right. you know, it, it, which has got me thinking about ageism within design yeah. and ageism with designers and how it's reflected. The oh, other yeah. group developed their suit, but they actually went to the Salvation Army or, or a, a, a thrift store and went to buy the raggedy, baggy suit that they assumed older people wear. Wow. And it was the worst thing. And they had it on, and it got me um, really thinking about how ingrained ageism is within our society mm-hmm. and what that might mean to designers as we design products mm-hmm. based on still, and again, I thought I sensitized them to the issues, and then they came up, and it was actually a really interesting conversation because I said, do people really wear these suits, or is this your perception? And why is this your perception? And also to the other group, I think you understand this is a Halloween mask. Right. That actually as a society, we will have a Halloween mask where we will dress up as an older person. And it was an older man's mask, right. a cranky old man's mask with the uh, wild hair on the um, eyebrows wow. and, right. and hair coming out of the nose and things like that. So it, it actually started me on a longer journey in terms of looking at 
well, ageism, but also ageism specifically within design mm -hmm. and how it's being transferred into stereotypes around uh, products that they use that just kind of reinforce stereotypes mm -hmm. of, of aging mm -hmm. or negative aspects of aging. So a su successful empathy suit might have had what sort of properties? I think a, a successful empathy experience is talking to someone face-to-face. -face. I'm a little bit leery about these suits. Mm -hmm. For me, it does put you in a different place. It became, and I always, and again, I now call my empathy suit the aging ageist suit. And I now run workshops where I'll have people go putting it on, and then I will usually restrict them to the very severe things because uh, a lot of times as we age, the functional issues that we range of motion issues we might have might be gradual uh -huh. and then we just accommodate ourselves. Uh -huh. So usually I, and I've always got these mechanisms and all their joints and I really tighten them up and then people start to shuffle and everybody groans and then it really becomes an interesting conversation and in saying, is this the reality of aging or our fear of aging? And then I say, go out and look at a general population in their 80s, and you don't really see a lot of this. Yes, it may be some people's experiences, right. but for most of the time, it's not people's experiences. So I think the empathy suit, it was an interesting journey that it took, and I really pull away from really understanding empathy that you can actually put on a suit yeah. to empathize. For me, it was putting on the suit to bring up a lot of other issues. I think it's a nice step to trying to understand the physical difficulties if you put on the suit of sitting down and getting up. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, actually, after the New York Times article, people have been coming back to me to the aging suit. And I had a PBS guy come up here, and I actually wrote about it because it was used as a humorous device, and it really wasn't huh. what I was trying to get huh. at. Now, in some ways, I, I feel it's, it, it reinforces ageist stereotypes. Yeah, I can see where you're thinking. Um, yeah. And that's a little bit of it and, and it forces you not to do the really hard work of it's talking a bit to simplistic. people and yeah. it is and I position it in a larger empathy sort of thing that people have to do it's it, it, you know that's an understanding where you can talk to someone saying well I, I kind of know what it feels like to not to get out of a chair because I tried on the suit and it was mm -hmm. very difficult to do mm -hmm. it because I can so I can understand feeling trapped in a chair yeah. that you can't get out of and what that might might feel like. But I think as long as it's background to getting my students and people actually talking to people about their experiences, and, mm -hmm. I, and that's how I kind of frame it. Last year, actually, when I was doing, because we did a class on designing for dementia with my students, and that's probably the most powerful class. We actually held brains that had Alzheimer's. Wow. Like we, yeah, and it was, it was such a powerful experience. For all of my students, I thought they would, because we have a brain bank, like one of the largest brain banks of Alzheimer's research in Halifax. Oh. And we went in there, and I, I don't know, it's, it's very powerful to hold a brain. But you could see the difference. And also really understood that Alzheimer's is a disease that not everybody gets. It's a disease. It's not part of getting old. It's a disease. Oh, absolutely. It's not normal yeah. aging. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and then looking at the brain, it made perfect because he showed us this is what happened. And you could see the difference in the brain. It was like, wow. So you took um, some students. Can you t describe that course? That sounds really interesting. I always want to take my students on a journey. And we worked with the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia. And I approached them and said, we don't know what we're going to design. We will use design thinking to explore the issues. We'll understand the issues, and then we will do a number of assignments. So one of them was kind of actually making information graphics around Alzheimer's. And we presented them at a conference and actually had the whole conference vote on them. Hmm. 
And the students did an amazing job, but we also took some reports that were done and actually did an information graphic on it. But part of the sensitivity was going to the brain bank and, and looking at them and talking about the research and what happens to a, to a brain um, mm -hmm. and the disease, the aspects of the disease. Mm -hmm. And then also we had the students, I broke them up into teams, and they created journey maps of an early stage Alzheimer's patient, a middle stage and a late stage. So the early stage was this woman who had just had it. The middle stage was actually a spouse. And this woman was looking after her spouse and he had it. Mm -hmm. And then the late stage was actually in a nursing home, which we went to. And we didn't know what we were going to design. We said, we, we will create a storyboard and a journey map mm -hmm. of their day-to-day -day activities and understand the weak points of it and then try to design around some of those weak points that are happening in their life. So for the early stage, she had to give up her car but was taking public transit. So that became an issue. Of, she was always getting off and not knowing where she, she was. So if you look at a lot of bus stops, they're in the middle. They're not on corners, right? I mean, and so it's an issue with how many times have people gotten off buses and not know, like I've walked the wrong way because I don't know where I am if I'm not paying attention. Uh -huh. So they developed some really sensitive signage that we flipped it over to a graduate program at another university for them to try to implement it with the city. Now, it didn't happen, but it was kind of neat So because uh, we always designed for something to, to happen with it. The other group was the, the mid-stage, and they interviewed, a, the Alzheimer's interviewed the husband and her spouse and the woman that was looking after her, and her issue was keeping them busy. Like it was, She said it was exhausting. So they developed this thing called a sensor bag because you find out that your sensory actually gets a lot better with Alzheimer's. Like you touch a lot, you feel things. And it was a discrete bag that he could have with other stuff in that that he could play with. So a lot of times people will give people like stuffed toys and then you mm -hmm. see this adult with this little baby or plastic mm -hmm. baby. So this was a bag that had a lot of sensory stuff in it hmm. that he could discreetly put his hand in the bag and play with it. And we actually, what was so interesting, the reporter that covered it for us, and we had a bunch of reporters covering it when they presented, it was his parents. Now, this is just because we're in a small town, right. in a small well, city. Huh. And he actually took it out to his father. And his father wasn't so interested. I think the idea was interested because a lot of the... It's called busy hands, uh -huh. but a lot of them are child stuff that people get. Yeah. And so we want, so the students really, when we framed it around designing for dignity, so that was that solution. It was called a sensor bag mm -hmm. with different things in it to, mm -hmm. for games to play that really engaged your senses. And it was almost like, you know, if you're a Catholic playing with rosary beads, mm -hmm. a little bit of that, if someone mm -hmm. saw you playing with that beads that way, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Like you would just go, oh, or someone taking one of those spongy balls and like doing it. So right. we wanted to create products that if you're doing it, it wouldn't be like, oh gosh, what's that? It's like someone's just squishing a ball. And then for the uh, caregivers um, or for the nursing home. And in Canada, and it's probably the same in the States, nursing homes are probably 99% dementia care facilities. So we couldn't mm -hmm. talk, to, the, of course, to the people, mm -hmm. but we talked to the caregivers, probably like in the States, a lot of immigrant women, a lot of minorities. So we talked to them because we thought the way that we could help uh, the people in the facilities was by helping the people that were looking after them. Right. And these people sure. were valued. So they were, they were making minimum wage. Right. A really tough job. There's a really hierarchy in the system. So these were ground-level caregivers that were making 15 bucks an hour minimum mm -hmm. wage in Canada mm -hmm. um, and not valued at all. So okay, we created a campaign called Helping St. Vincent. So they're having the 50th anniversary, Helping St. Vincent Grow. And we identified some flowers that connected with sensory stuff with Alzheimer's and 
developed a plan for a greenhouse that went off one of the sides of the building because it was a classic 60s building that mm-hmm. had no windows, very sterile. Hmm. And we costed it all out and we tried to... And, and the, the final thing we did, we also presented it to the board. The board liked it. Or the woman... They're, they're in transition mm-hmm. between the president who was mm-hmm. running the place. They're always in transition. The, yeah, so, and it, it was really easy for around ten to $15,000. We even created a capital campaign for them. Mm-hmm. They could have easily implemented it. So and it was this a greenhouse? A it was a greenhouse that kind of went off the thing. It was a modular system uh-huh. that was all wood, uh-huh. a lot of lighting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And because they said, oh, in the winter, people just don't get out there. So yeah. it was also could be used in the winter. Sometimes in the winter, people don't see the, the sunlight. And especially these old buildings, there's no light. And also for the people that worked there, there would be fresh herbs, there'd be sure. dirt. So the idea for anybody, it was kind of like a little bit of a Zen type place. Yeah. You could go and just, even if you were working there, just to go, because a lot of them said, man, I just, you know, I have these people screaming at me. And, and um, a lot of them were um, African-Canadian and mm-hmm. you get all this racial stuff coming out and mm-hmm. they go, I know this could be the disease, but probably in their back of their mind, oh gosh, is this latent racism? Right. Oh, yeah. That's coming, that's coming out now. So it was... Um, so they didn't implement yeah, so, it ultimately? Yeah, they didn't. It was, you know, it, there's only so much we could do. Right. I offered my services over the summer, said, listen, I'll project manage it. It's all laid out. The capital campaign, we costed it out. I had also connected an architecture. Um, they do these free labs over the summer where architecture students at the local university could have built it, but they needed to happen. So this was last fall that we did it. So we, did, we presented in, in December. They needed to go on it. They're in transition. And mm. just the woman that was a temporary didn't want to make any decisions around it. Mm. Unfortunately, the person that I originally contacted left as we were going through the process. So wow. he probably would have wow. implemented it. Some nice sensitive solutions. And yeah. again, for the students, it was going through the process of listening to people, understanding where there is good opportunities, and also logistically, what can we do as a class? So, you know, yeah, I think that's really great. Yeah. Well, how is designing products for healthcare different than designing products for other industries? And can you talk about some of the most common questions or stories you hear from healthcare professionals where design is concerned? Well, it's interesting. And are usually what happens in, in, in healthcare, it's really about functional issues. So that's why you get, as I call, a lot of products that smell and look like a, a hospital. Uh-huh. And a lot of the designs that are coming out or the problems that are being identified, it's usually by uh, healthcare professionals, could be by caregivers, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's healthcare professionals. So it's always reframed through that lens. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times that's why you get things that are easy to clean, very clinical, because they function very well in a hospital. Now, my interest in is a lot of these products navigate to the home and don't really fit. So you have a lot of resistance to people using them. Mm -hmm. So there's a real medical narrative associated with traditional products associated with aging, which are the assistive aids. Now, as you age, you use all sorts of products, but those are the products that the narrative about aging, oh, it's, it's, it's canes and things like that. Right. So um, my research showed that actually the healthcare industry is the same in terms of ageist attitudes as the general population, so hmm. it's not less. Hmm. And the issues that they're dealing with is usually their patients are the sick older population. They're not necessarily getting the, the healthy older population because they're not accessing the system. Right. So that's a little bit of their framework. 
which hmm. is a little bit of a problem hmm. because then they just design for that group and that's why you see all those products related to that group around probably health issues and medical issues. My feeling is that a lot of those products that have the whiff and smell of a hospital actually reinforce negative stereotypes about aging. And also when we see people with them, it reinforces our aspects about aging. Oh, completely agree. Uh, All you have to do is walk into a medical supply store to become horrified by like a platoon of walkers. Yeah, so a lot of those products, again, make sense because they're coming from a very clinical or medical people are understanding it. Mm -hmm. And they're driving the design and the language of what these things look like because they're not so much focused on aesthetics. They're focused on, okay, functionality, this has to hold a bariatric patient. They've got to sit in the seat and get out. I need the weight thing. It needs to be cleanable in the hospital. So again, that's where you get that narrative. So mm-hmm. the, the opportunity I see, of course, is that is there's a huge opportunity for products that better reflect the needs and desires of, of people that are older. And those needs and desires, a lot of it's the same. It doesn't really change to your life. Mm-hmm. You want something to look good. You mm-hmm. want something yeah. to function well. Mm-hmm. You know, you want it to reflect who you are. So that's where I see a large opportunity. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, talk about your research into creative workarounds or hacks designed to ease yeah. the burden of aging. And did any older adults in your own family inspire this work? It was interesting because it started, I'm, I'm always interested in how people creatively change things. Mm-hmm. It actually started when I sent my students, probably around 2008 or nine, okay. out to document their grandparents' lives. Oh. And when they came back, they identified, I started to notice all of these adaptations that their grandparents were doing. And then from that, I got really interested in, I mean, how can first I understand as a designer? Because a lot of them although some of them look kind of clunky from a design perspective, they're all meeting a need that wasn't being met. Mm-hmm. So with that, I actually went to the Mayo Clinic and did a fellowship there and, and proposed something that I'd like to identify how people are adapting their environments. And I've also done some work for Herman Miller, where I actually went into hospitals and looked how nurses were and, and, and healthcare professionals were adapting the hospital environment. And of course, from a design perspective, it's just some really good ideas that I I, can't, I keep keep collected in my mind and go, oh, that would make a great product. And so yeah. it does inspire me because, again, all of them are meeting some really interesting needs. So in that, I've started to document them even on Pinterest. Most of them are a lot from caregivers actually doing it for, for other people. So you had a lot of occupational therapists, and they've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. So the occupational therapist would call them workarounds. I was calling them hacks because I wanted to change the narrative that these were just as creative as a younger generation hacking things. So that's a little bit sort of what I wanted to... uh, Be a little um, subversive uh, there, huh? A little bit subversive and also change the narrative of what they were. So in the healthcare, you always hear the the word workarounds, and and they are workarounds too. So I was just using product hacks because Mm -hmm. I thought that was like, wow, these are great hacks. So again, that was the language I was trying to use. Mm-hmm. I know that you interviewed some residents of a nursing home. What were some of the problematic user experiences that you encountered? And what were some of their hacks? Can you give us some examples? Well, I went into the, uh, and, and actually it was independent living. There was uh-huh. nursing homes, but it was uh-huh. an independent living. Okay. And I had uh, put out the call and, and I needed to visually document them too. Mm-hmm. And they would usually say, oh, I've got one I want to show you. Mm-hmm. And when I would go there, because I, I could look around, and I would usually find about 10. A lot of them were related around fundamental daily activities like bathing yourself, 
um, getting out of a chair. There's a lot of medication management stuff that right, was happening too. Right. There was one interesting gentleman who was actually looking after his spouse who had some dementia issues. And he had developed, and he was actually making it for other residences, uh, people in, in the uh, facility, where he was taking these clips from casinos, you know, the little clips, and creating them to hold a bib. Oh. Because he was going for dinner with her, and because he was now also doing the washing, he felt it was undignified for using these baby bibs. So he wanted her to use just a serviette or a napkin, like anybody else. And he would snap this onto her cane. So when he could do there, he could take out what everybody else was using and just clip it onto this that would be around her neck. A little, uh, um, I can't remember what they call it. um, Lanyard. Oh, a lanyard. lanyard. Okay, yeah. Okay, like a long... A little clip lanyard. Yeah. And there'd be two clips on each side. So it, it got me thinking about, I mean, and, and that's where sort of my next stage was looking at, well, how can we design for dignity? And a lot of the design are very undignified for people. And he thought it was very undignified for his spouse to be wearing this plastic bib. So again, a lot of products that we develop are ageist because we're using also a lot of infant products, you know, whether it's a, yeah. a walker or even using some of the same language which I think is harmful. But yet, when we design it for a child, and we can look at the walkers that they have, they have quite a lot of choice. And it's, it's about their development. So it's interesting, the narrative for them, it's about their growth and the development, whereas the walker that might be designed for an older population is not. So, you know, you found actually a lot of people adapting walkers. and It was, it was really personalizing the very sterile things to make them more meet your needs. But everybody was adapting. Everybody mm-hmm. was doing workarounds because they just needed to. And sometimes the low-tech solution is better than the high-tech solution. <laughs> well, most of it was low-tech. They were using, I mean, everybody had a cell phone or a smartphone. Uh-huh. They're all using it. Now, what was interesting... Wait, a smartphone were, or a flip phone? No, there was a, all of them had... This was also a very professional group of people coming out of the Mayo Clinic. So, you right, know, you had right. that, but they didn't have the newest version. Because at a certain point in your life, it's like, well, this version is good enough. Yeah, good I don't enough, need to right. update. So when they were using it, they, and they used it in various ways, but a lot of it was communicated. They didn't need all the uses. So whenever I hear about this increase in technology or the latest app, I'm going, well, be careful because that right. app may not be able to use on their phone. And that may not be the solution. So I think there's the idea of tech fixes. And when it may not be a tech fix, that deals with their problem, you know. It, uh, so that's always, I always caution my student is you've got a technology looking for a, a solution, and mm-hmm. that's always the problem. And it always sounds very sexy. So the medication management right. systems that they were doing, the one thing I did find uh, when I was with the mail is that they had all been given these pills and stuff and kind of said, go figure it out, like yeah. manage your own medication. Mm-hmm. And they were actually developing these really sophisticated paper-based systems that they would take to their doctor. For the doctor, and they had one guy say, the doctor thanked them, saying, thank you, this helps me understand all the medications. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd actually proposed that they run a seminar or a workshop where actually you get pharmacists, doctors, and the people that are using the system design a system because essentially what happens, you get other people designing systems for people that just doesn't fit into to how they use or using technology is just like, well, no, I don't use that technology. Right. 
Right. And it was low tech, but again, it worked. You said they were writing their prescriptions on a paper bag? No, they were creating, a, a lot of them were creating, again, it wasn't in the USA, it was, a lot of it was Excel spreadsheets that okay. they were using. They were creating it and printing it out. And in fact, the Mayo Clinic had given them a thing to write it on, but it was so small. Yeah. That was interesting. So you're getting a lot of products or services and systems that are not really designed for the specific user's needs, whether it's based on gender or ethnicity or age in this case, mm-hmm. or all three in this case. Right. <laughs> yeah. I read about a stocking on a bar of soap as a hack. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Well, that came out of, uh, and, I, and I had been searching, that's not my idea, it came actually out of Singapore. And there's a hospital out there where they started to develop these things or started to identify them. And they also wanted to tell other people about them. And this was, I thought, just such a smart idea. It was was soap that goes in the stocking. And a little bit of like soap on a rope. Yeah. You tie your stocking up. It has a little bit of elasticity to it. Uh The soap gets smaller, but it doesn't break up. There's a nice little exfoliant with the stocking. Right. Now... From a design perspective, it's say, like, oh, this is meeting all the needs. Maybe you need to take it away from the language of a stocking. But it was such a smart idea because a lot of times you have even those hand pumps, and those don't work very well oh, because right. you've got to refill them. It's a wet environment and things like that. So um, I thought that was just a real smart, simple solution. So that's um, basically an old, felt- old stocking with a bar of soap tucked into the foot that you use in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> and you tie the top to your either your shower head or one of your faucet taps or right. things like that. And it's nice. It's always there. It kind of stretches a little bit. It's really you clever. grab it and do it. Yeah, yeah. And again, from a design perspective, it's like, oh, this is really easy and uh, solves a lot of problems. Right. Can you give me an example of a product that you designed that you never would have imagined you would have designed? Um, oh, gosh, yes. And it's brought up so much issues for me. Now, now my mother is in in her 80s, but I haven't done a lot of caregiving for her. So I I don't have a lot of caregiving experience. I don't have a lot of personal experience around that. So I did a workshop last year, and it was an organization that does home health care. And I always ask people when I do workshops, well, what are the issues you're dealing with? Mm-hmm. And at least this was, in, it was up in Halifax in Canada here. And they said, you wouldn't believe how often we're called and the money that we spend to drive out to someone's place to wipe their bottom. And I thought, and I thought, well, of course it would exist, but I never would have thought about it. <laughs> and it brought up so many issues, at least for me, of how to design something that has the dignity for two key types of people. And also in your life, thinking about it, if you're getting older and you can't wipe your bottom Mm -hmm. and what that might bring up for someone in a life stage of saying, oh my goodness, I can't wipe my butt. So I looked at what was out there and all of them seemed ridiculous. There was like almost one that, and I went to the local thing and bought it and it looked like big barbecue tongs. You'd put the toilet paper in and it was just horrible. Whether it is even you as a, as a, as a child doing it to your mother or a caregiver that you don't know doing it to someone mm-hmm. and the uncomfortable exposure from both ends. Yeah. Like how can you make this a dignified thing? And I don't know if I've really solved it, the big issue was actually just getting the toilet paper on. <laughs> and it was supposed to be someone that could self-do it. Now, there might be a certain point in your life where you just don't have the mobility to actually right. do it. Also, and a whole bunch of issues. How do 
people wipe their bottom. Am I doing it the same as other people? Right. And, you know, <laughs> and talking to my spouse, you know, even I've, I've never had a conversation. Right. And then it took me a long time. I designed something for me to actually use it. Yeah. And I was so resistant to using it. So in some ways, I even thought myself as a, as a little bit, I was upset with myself and fine, you know, am I a coward? No, here is, here I'm talking about all these design things. Yet I'm not willing to use it, and I did use it. You know, it's, it's interesting talking about it because a lot of humor does come up as we talk about it, and, yeah. and I think that's okay. But there's something also deeper there about um, how do you create a, um, an interaction between a caregiver and someone that's, that's dignified for both people. And I don't know if I have it because I don't think there is one solution. And I think it's also dependent on the interaction between the two people and how that's doing. But I do feel with the product, that interaction might be a little bit more dignified for both people mm-hmm. if that was happening or the one person could use it uh, and things like that. But there was also different issues from two different people. And I, I found that really interesting because I was looking at the commode and they're very sterile looking. And when I did my workshops and, and talked to people, the issues for the people using it was, of course, it's, I don't want this toilet, this thing sitting in my bedroom where a lot of them were or whatever. It's, it's just embarrassing yeah. to have it. It's like yeah. I can't make it. For the people that were caregiving, it's like, do you know what it is like to walk with a bucket of human waste? I just don't like walking down the hall. It's horrible. I just hate cleaning it and doing it because usually the caregiver had to do that. So there was two different issues around it. So I spent a lot of time integrating a bucket because right now a lot of the buckets, on, at least on the commercial products, were literally slop buckets that would slop around. And when I saw it, I said, this is a slop bucket. So it took a lot to design. It was really a lot of issues around designing a dignified bucket for both people, because also the idea that if you're a, a, a patient and someone's cleaning your commode, that you that you will be really conscious of their reaction to cleaning it or, or using it or walking down the hallway. For a lot of the caregivers, they oh, we hated it. So was this I, in a hospital wow. setting or a home setting? At this time, I was looking at a home setting. Okay. Yeah. And now, so the, the commode would be setting. in the actual bedroom? Well, sometimes people will will have them in their Close in their by. bedroom or yeah, stuff like that. Right. A lot of times it's late at night. I mean, you could go to the, the diapers even in, in another interesting word that they right. would be using. But there is some cases where it's actually, a lot of times uh, it'll be in um, near your bed or something like yeah. that. So we designed a commode that was beautiful. Now, I, I want one. Did you try this yeah. out on yourself, did you say? I have tried have it, oh, okay. and it nests in on itself. When it's mm-hmm. not there, it actually looks like a nice little bench that okay. you would have. There's okay. some nice material. I mean, the problem, of course, it gets a little expensive. It's not at a right. lower end. So, right. that, you know, that always limits it. But it's dealing with those issues and then talking to people. It hasn't been thoroughly tested, so that's the next mm-hmm. stage. But again, it brought up really interesting issues. Um, so, so yes, the, the the bum wipe is something. I the bum wipe. I, there we have it. Yeah. So are both. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that's. That's not what's going to be called. <laughs> I don't I don't know how to brand that one. So maybe you can help me on that. Are both of your parents still living? <laughs> no, my dad died a, a long time ago, and my mother is eighty-five. Um, is she active? Dad just a very active marathon runner and all oh, of that. Wow. And she actually had a quadruple bypass a couple of years ago so mm-hmm. that was the first really big health issue she had wow. 
but a very good attitude, in, in some ways more active than I am. Have you engaged <laughs> her in any of your research? Yeah, I did. I was, especially the medication management, I was really interested in how she managed her medication. Mm-hmm. What did you and learn? A lot like what other people do. She keeps it in a drawer. She, you know, once a week, usually on a Sunday night, she'll bring it out and do her weekly timer. Mm-hmm. Very conscious of complying way more organized than I am mm-hmm. in terms of me dealing with my pills that I take now. So does she live in her own me. home? Does yeah, she does. Yeah. She lives in her yeah. own house. Does anyone come in to help her? She has a, um, she was very active in the, in the YMCA and just as she, uh, she's a bit of a caregiver for, for women in their nineties. Wow. She has a, a strong set of caregivers because she was so active running of women that are retired in their, in their sixties. So wow. She has created a very good ecosystem because all the kids are spread out literally around the world. Someone's in Alaska, someone's in Australia, and she's in in Victoria on the very other side of Canada. Mm -hmm. So she has a very good group of people around her to to help her. And there there will be a point, maybe, that she will be in assisted care. Mm -hmm. Um, But at this point, she isn't. Sounds like she's doing really well for 85. That's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. She used to dragon boat race. She was someone that... Um, actually, after my dad died, she kind of flowered. <laughs> well, that happens. <laughs> and, yeah. and that was really from a, of a generation uh-huh. that married in the 50s and, you know, raised kids and things like that. And, How old uh, was she know, when he died? I believe she was about 52. Yeah, because that's quite young, and it really does make a difference. My father died when my mom was 80, and uh, yeah, that's, that's you know, quite a it makes a big uh, difference. Yeah, and as I'm uh, past that age now, it's like, wow, yeah. that was pretty young to lose a spouse. <laughs> And of course, you would be active and vital and still do everything. So, and she yeah. never remarried. Yeah, she dated and things, but they never married. Okay, they uh, they just lived together, which was interesting too. Which I never yeah, <laughs> thoroughly modern and, mom. And and out and out, outlived uh, outlived a, a her partner. Wow. So again, she's on her own. So cool. wow. definitely, she's uh, looking at a stage in her life where she said it's probably not going to happen again. I'm probably not going to find another partner at that age. I think she was in the late 70s uh, yeah. when her other uh, partner, uh-huh. died. partner died. Uh-huh. How often do you see her? Not very often because it's such a long way. Yeah, it's a long way. We try to do it once a year. We used to fly around, but that's becoming too difficult now because mm-hmm. it's uh, just a long ride. And I've, I've got a little 12-year-old, so we're mm-hmm. always trying to connect that way. So how many kids total? Yeah. How many siblings do you have? Uh, I'm one of four. Okay. I've got three siblings. Okay. Um, so she's got a few a few kids, and, and but does she have someone close by that pops in on her every now and then? She's in Victoria, British Columbia, and right. uh, I have a brother in Vancouver. Okay, so that's the so. closest probably, right? Yeah, and then there's someone up in Alaska, but that's always difficult. And then my, my sister's in Australia, so. And no, then I'm over in, in Halifax. You're yeah. really spread around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, what's your goal with all this? What's your goal ultimately with designing for healthcare, getting back to design? My goal is that I think there can be a better narrative. I mean, I, I, when I look around, you know, areas for that need design, I always look at healthcare, whether it's the service of healthcare. Because everybody has a bad experience with it, or most people do, if they, mm-hmm. if they say, oh, I'm, I'm dealing with the healthcare system. So there's do things. There's the service of healthcare, which I'm very interested in, because the Mayo Clinic was looking at design thinking as a way to innovate healthcare. So there's the service aspect, and then there's also kind of as an industrial designer, I, I like doing products. So I, I mm-hmm. kind of have my feet in two areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that somehow the sensibility of design can actually help create a better healthcare system. Mm-hmm. whether it's through the environment, through the products, and it needs to be integrated. So 
some of the designer methodology, very empathetic view, prototyping things, looking at a human-centered approach and doing that, I think, is a way to offer an, an, uh, ways for, to, to innovate and refine and make the healthcare experience better. So that's ultimately where I want to go. Some of it's around products and some of it's actually around getting people to use some design thinking to approach healthcare in a different way. What do you mean when you say design thinking? Well, it's kind of a little bit of a buzzword and business kind of picked up on it, the idea of design thinking as a way to help innovate. So healthcare picked up on it because design thinking is really a a user-centered approach and the hospitals would say that they were patient-centered. So that Mm -hmm. was a nice combination. And that's where the Mayo Clinic was looking around and they developed a design studio within their uh, clinic in Rochester. Mm -hmm. And they're using some design thinking methodology to create a better experience for people. Now, they create a great experience already, but they are, are looking at that and they saw designers approach as really in line with what they wanted to do. Because it's user-centered. It's user-centered. It, it actually prototypes stuff. You build to think. So you right. don't try to get all the information. You make something, mm-hmm. try it out, and refine it. And designers, a little bit like engineers might try to engineer it too much and then have all the perfect answers. Designers are a little bit okay with some gray areas because mm-hmm. there's things I'll find out once I put it in someone's hand and they start to use it. So mm-hmm. it's that iterative approach that designers use they don't get too caught up of finding all the answers before they do something. They kind of evolve it by, okay, let's do it, and then test it out, and then kind of evolve it that way. So um, I think that's the approach that people like. For business, of course, they always think designers innovate. Apple kind of pushed that, you know, because they design everything. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. Apple kind of put design a little bit on the forefront right. in, at least 10 years ago. Yeah. It, it became very sexy to use that. And design thinking is something that everybody can use. Like everybody can talk to people, understand the issues, brainstorm, build something, mm-hmm. try it out, mm-hmm. and then go through that process again. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily form over function. It's a little bit of both. Well, a lot of times the issue in design thinking is to understand, uh, you know, what are your problems? What are the issues? How do you frame it? And what are the solutions? And there's not just one solution. So a lot of times the solution in healthcare is not a product. It's really a service-based solution. So that's a, again, that's what it is. In your presentation, you drew attention to the Mayo Clinic's use of conversation rooms rather than exam yeah, rooms. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that? Well, they had, they had identified most consultations or, or visits to the, your doctor is actually a conversation. But yet, for most of the time, you're sitting, you're sitting kind of exposed, right? They have you get in there. You're, you're sitting on this very sterile environment for probably 10% of actually what it is, because most of what you're going there is actually a conversation. Mm-hmm. So they identified that, well, let's design for the conversation and then have this other room for the other 10%. Right. And how can we efficiently use space? So you're not all of a sudden getting in there. And I, and I think, you know, we've all had that experience. You put on that gown and you're kind of sitting in the sterile room up on this gurney and right. you're feeling exposed. Totally. And, and we're just talking, you know, they're talking about issues that you don't need to be in this weird uniform, like this weird outfit right. in this weird room when right. you should be just having a conversation with your doctor. And then if need be, you can do that. So I, I think that was really, you know, you can talk about a really human centered approach. 
And it yeah. was smart. And it's a way better experience. So we, we all understand the bad experiences, but it takes an organization like Mayo, because, they, because of their reach, to actually kind of put up a mirror and saying, this is the experience. Is, is there a way better experience? Mm-hmm. Are there any other healthcare systems that are doing a good job that you can sort of cite to or doing innovative stuff? That you you know, I was looking at that. Interestingly, a lot of healthcare systems, uh, um, they're starting to get the, a, a better environment, but a lot of it goes too much into the environment and not into changing the culture. So and that's always hmm. a problem, the healthcare culture. So yeah. they always think, oh, we'll paint the walls, we'll make it a nice environment. But they also then create a very unhealthy work environment for the people that work there, whether it's the shifts they use mm-hmm. or things like that. So mm-hmm. um, I think it needs to be a more holistic approach. I think the big places do it well. I know, I, I know um, John Hopkins is looking at it. I know the Cleveland Clinic mm-hmm. um, is very progressive. So you're getting a lot of places with a lot of money right. <laughs> uh, looking at it. And I've always asked that question. There was some interesting stuff. Someone said that in, in Alaska they're doing with First Nations. Or the, um, I don't know what the Americans call it, but we call it the First Nations, so the Aboriginals. And they're trying to integrate more of a cultural thing into it, mm-hmm. uh, into healthcare. And again, that's a very user-centered approach. So I don't think there's one size fits all. Yeah. And it, it's very complex. Yeah. Know, and I think that's the issue. It, and it's a big system. And I think because there's so much money involved, and uh, I, I know in, in Nova Scotia, we're just, because we have such an older population, we are just treading water to try to keep up with the problems that we're having. We're, we're the same life. here in the U.S. Yeah. We're, it's, yeah. it's crazy, so, and, and our politicians aren't even dealing with it, really. Their heads are in yeah, the sand. Yeah. And I think that's probably the issue. So I think whether it's the hospital or the healthcare systems, in, in whether it's the states or the provinces or the different countries, are aware of it. It's just, I think sometimes it's very complex. Yeah. And again, that's where I think design thinking is kind of a, a way to think about, well, how can we design something that's not as complex? But it takes a lot of progressive people in positions of power yep. and buy-in from everybody. Right. Um, so true. Yeah. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? I think for me, and, and I think ultimately as a society, and it's probably as a Western society because um, uh, Canada's thinking is not much different from the States, we don't do a good job of understanding people's life course and valuing that life course at different, at different stages. And as you get older, because there's a really thing about the frailty and, oh gosh, they're going to take too much of the money. And I think that's definitely an ageist attitude. And we don't do a good job of understanding that life course and also really understanding dying. So I think it's helped me as I, as I look at issues. And I probably in, in, in every case when you're forced, whether you're a caregiver looking after a parent or things like that, it's a little bit of, of looking at your mortality, but also looking at what life means. And I think there's value all through life in terms of it. And people are just at different stages. And I've come to understand that whether you even have, you know, if you have Alzheimer's, it is for me also just a different stage. And how do you design around that? You know, there's people that, I mean, the Dutch are a little bit more sensitive. So the Europeans seem to be a little bit more sensitive to that, where I think in North America, it's somehow there's no value in that, because there is value even looking after someone and what you learn as a human being. 
Glenn Hogan, he teaches industrial design at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design University, and he's a principal at Wellspan Research and Design, which takes a human-centered approach to design for health and aging. We'll have all kinds of links to Glenn's work on the AgeWise website, so be sure to check that out. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great talking with you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.